Welcome to The Defiant Podcast. Each week, we sit with those defying traditional finance and legacy institutions, the biggest brains and biggest names, and also those making a quieter but profound impact, the founders, investors, and creators of decentralized finance and Web3. You'll hear from them right here and get the scoop on how they're building at the frontier. I'm your host, Defiant founder, Camila Russo, putting this new world within your reach. Sirion is mission control for Web3, giving users the ability to trade DeFi tokens, transfer assets across chains, and show off their NFT collections all in one place. Sirion offers a multi-chain experience with asset tracking and trading across seven networks, including Polygon, Optimism, Arbitrum, and BSC, so you'll never miss an opportunity waiting on gas fees to drop. NFT owners can also see their favorite collectibles and art as widgets on their iPhones or Apple Watches and send them to family and friends in a few clicks. Users can explore every corner of the metaverse with Sirion from their web, desktop, and mobile apps. Head to Sirion.io to connect your wallet and get started today. Welcome, Ethan, to the Defiant Podcast. It's so great to have you here. Thanks a lot, Camilla. Nice to be here. Ethan Buckman is the co-founder of Cosmos an ecosystem of interoperable blockchains, which includes Terra, Osmosis, and Crypto.org. It has the most value log after Ethereum. It's a complex network with many moving parts, and in the past year, it's exploded with activity. How does it all work, and what was Ethan's background before coming into this space? As far as my background goes, growing up, I was always interested in sort of the big questions of life, you know, why we're here, how do we get here, what are we doing here? And, you know, what should we do about, about any of that? And, and so through investigating that, studying, you know, neuroscience and religion and history and ultimately the origin of life, I sort of became infatuated with the problem of sustainability and what it means to be a sustainable organism in a universe that's always trying to tear you down, right? We have like the second law of thermodynamics, entropy is always increasing, you know, everything moves towards disorder. If you spend any time in this ecosystem, you see how rapidly uh, disorder emerges. And, and so I was really fascinated by that, by that problem and how, how it is that living systems emerge and maintain themselves and how we might apply that kind of understanding to our socioeconomic systems and our society and our civilization. You know, is, is civilization even something that, that can be sustainable? And so that was the, the sort of problem that was occupying a lot of my thought in, in school. I figured I would go on to be a, you know, a professor and just sort of dwell in these, in these problems and, and, and in this kind of theoretical mindset. Forever, and then at some point, I met Vlad Zamfir, you know, well known in Ethereum these days. At the time, this was before we got into in, into cryptocurrency, and we became good friends at, at university. And you know, he started teaching me about the financial system and how corrupt everything is, and you know, kind of opened my eyes to the world beyond beyond professordom or beyond the ivory tower, I guess you could say. And I found that very depressing, and <laughs> kind of realized that you know this this desire to sort of stay in academia and just work on these problems at a theoretical level wasn't going to be sufficient. And I was kind of going to have to do something about it more practically and address these really fundamental problems of the corrupt structure of the financial system and, and at the heart of it, uh, really the monetary system. And, and so, you know, that together, we sort of discovered Bitcoin and, and, you know, Ethereum and started working on these things and, you know, really committed ourselves to, to, I guess, building these systems probably for the rest of our lives in order to improve the fundamental substructure of, of society. And at least, at least for me, a big motivation was, was that it felt like the phenomenon I was studying in the biophysical world of the origin of life 
was kind of reoccurring in the digital world with the birth of blockchains as sort of digital organisms or something like that. And so I became really, you know, fascinated with this, with the problem of whether whether they could have a role in a more sustainable social economy. And so that that's sort of what led me into the rabbit hole. And then I kind of fell down it and, you know, haven't been able to get back out. That's so interesting. You come into the blockchain world from a very, I guess, unusual angle of, you know, living systems and biophysics, biology and neuroscience. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if you can kind of dive deeper on, on that connection there, because, you know, from from the outside, it's it's kind of hard to see it. Yeah, no, for sure. So the crux of the matter is, and, and sort of the, the climax of, I guess, my research in, in biophysics was this understanding that sustainable systems are systems that internally within their structure are able to have efficient and accurate representations of their environment, right? In some sense, they have to internally represent the patterns of energy flow that drive them. And, and, and they need to do that because they need to be able to respond to changes in their environment. They need to be able to capture energy, store it up internally so that they can use it and have access to it to respond and adapt and reproduce and so on. And so, you know, there's been a lot of work over the decades kind of coming to this understanding of, of the, let's say, information theoretic nature of sustainability this, and the relationship between an organism's ability to model its environment and its ability to sustain itself in that, in that environment. And that, that's kind of intuitive, you know, that, that might be sort of obvious, but there has been actual real, real formal work on it. And, and the way I see, you know, the way I've kind of defined or described what's happening in human socioeconomic systems is that the, the structures and institutions we use to organize ourselves are ways to represent aspects of the environment or aspects of the social structure in some kind of, you know, internal organism, you could call it internally in, in the institution. And so the, the history of, of humanity is in some sense, this like evolving progressive desire to represent more of the stakeholders of society and including the planet within the state machine of our institutions of our of our civilization right and and i see blockchains as ways that to really kind of formalize and and extend and facilitate this problem of representing stakeholders more effectively in the state machine and so you know historically like like if you look at the patterns of you know of, of political economy and and who was able to vote as just like a very basic example you know way way to concretely talk about this over time we've extended the vote to more and more people. And so in a sense, the, the state machine of society, the rules and institutions of society have become more representative of, of a greater body of stakeholders in, in at least our, you know, highest level democratic electoral institutions, which are, you know, still riddled with issues. But there are many more places and, and aspects in society where we do a really poor job of representing stakeholders and especially of representing the environment and sort of the, the ecology of the planet as a fundamental stakeholder. And so I see blockchains as as a tool, as technologies for enabling us to better represent stakeholders in the state machines of civilization, and thereby through that, you know, hopefully create a more sustainable civilizational form. That's so interesting. And so how, how do you reconcile the environmental aspect, you know, having blockchains be a more kind of representative system with obviously kind of proof of work? Yeah, well, I, I think I've played a big role over the last seven, eight years. Uh, of transitioning the whole blockchain ecosystem away from proof of work. You know, I, I wrote my master's thesis in, in 2016 that was on on Tendermint and in the context of, you know, the history of, of consensus science and how we can use this extensive literature and advancements like Tendermint and, and future advances to make blockchains more efficient and more in, environmentally friendly. And obviously the entire blockchain industry has has kind of moved to proof of work or sort of proof of stake since and, you know, Ethereum's planning to move and 
But I still have a soft spot for Bitcoin and for its proof of work. I happen mm. to believe that there is room for one big proof of at least one, but probably only one proof of work chain on the planet. And I'm happy um, for that to be Bitcoin. And I, I sort of try to explain this. I have a blog post called Orange is the New Green, where I sort of try to write about this. But I think it's important to ground the monetary system or the financial system in in sort of thermodynamic processes. And, and Bitcoin is a way to do this. It's a very crude way to do this. And so it's not sufficient for the sustainability story. But I actually think Bitcoin has more to offer to you know global sustainability than it does take away from it. And, and people often hyper-focus on like, you know, certain aspects of the environmental impact and on, you know, the, the carbon emissions and, and, and stuff like that. And there's, there's a lot of nuance here. And I don't know how much, how much time we want to spend sort of diving into all that. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, the way I put it is, is that the world has bigger problems right now than the energy consumption of Bitcoin. And I would rather face those problems with Bitcoin at our back than, than without it. So, yeah. That's super interesting. So do you see the future of, of the blockchain ecosystem as you know, Bitcoin still being an important part of it? Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, I'm, I could put it like this. I'm irresponsibly long Bitcoin, Ether, and Atom, plus you know, okay. a smattering of other, of other things. But I think, I think both Bitcoin and, and Ethereum will have you know, big roles to play in, in the long term for the blockchain ecosystem, and, and, and Bitcoin especially as something that is, it's offering a very particular kind of guarantee, not only the thermodynamic guarantees it offers in terms of, in terms of proof of work and you know, the inability to, to, rewrite, um, to rewrite the history, but culturally, the, the social contract around Bitcoin is, is quite different from pretty much every other blockchain in the sense that it's, it's very conservative. And, and a lot of people think that's, you know, oh, that means Bitcoin's dead or it can't evolve. I don't think that's true. Bitcoin does still evolve. We saw the SegWit upgrade. We saw the, you know, the, the Taproot upgrade. So Bitcoin does evolve, it just evolves a lot more slowly. And it's important to have at the foundation of sustainable systems, a very slow moving processes that you can kind of depend on that aren't going to change under you in ways that you, you sort of can't expect. So I do think that's it's important for those reasons. But it's obviously also important that we have higher level systems that can move much faster and can adapt more rapidly to sort of changes in the environment. And that's what you know the technology we've been building is really all about. Awesome. Okay, so I definitely want to get uh, you know deeper into your, your view of the blockchain ecosystem and the future and, and multi-chain or cross-chain, all of that discussion. But let's go back to just like starting Cosmos. Cosmos was an idea that was born and grown from as early as 2014. One of the fundamentals during this period was figuring out how to shift from proof of work to proof of stake. Ethan wanted to enable each project and community to be able to build and secure their own blockchain. It was Ethan's goal to bring about a community computer revolution, stemming from the personal computer revolution. So how did this take shape over time? And what were the gaps he saw in the Ethereum model? This podcast is sponsored by Unstoppable Domains. Unstoppable Domains is the number one provider of NFT domains. With your unique NFT domain, such as camilla.crypto or camilla.nft, you can replace your long, complex wallet address, verify ownership of your NFTs, log into Web3 apps, and join tens of thousands of people using them as their Twitter usernames. Better yet, with Unstoppable Domains, you don't have to worry about gas or renewal fees, and you own them forever. Go to unstoppabledomains.com and get yourname.crypto.x.nft or a range of other endings for as low as five bucks. So, 
you know, Vlad and I were working together on Ethereum in, in 2014, and we're, you know, very optimistic about it. I ended up getting a job with a company that year. We were both sort of working kind of, on, you know, in the open source community. And then I took a job with a company that was trying to bring Ethereum to enterprises. And I thought, you know, I, I was excited to have my first job, honestly. But I also thought, you know, I think you could say I'm a bit, bit, I have a practical bend and I'm, I'm an idealist, but I also like to see how things um, can actually materialize in practice. And I thought, you know, working with a company to try to bring this technology to real enterprises and it was run by lawyers. And I thought that would be kind of interesting, would be really, would be really valuable. And, and, and two things, two things sort of happened late that year. One was, you know, we realized that obviously if we were going to bring this technology to enterprises, we were going to need, you know, we weren't going to be able to use proof of work and we would need to sort of upgrade the consensus mechanism and use something, you know, a bit more interesting. And proof of stake was already being sort of discussed in the ecosystem. And so there was sort of early group of people starting to work on it. And so, you know, that, that got me sort of professionally like, okay, well, we're going to have to, you know, uh, I've been maintaining or forks or playing with forks of the Go Ethereum code base since like all the way back then. So that, you know, we were forking Go Ethereum and trying to, trying to change out the consensus and all this, all this kind of stuff. So that was one. And then the other was, you know, there was a night that Vlad and I, and, and Vlad's written about this in his like history of Casper series, there was a night where we sort of stayed up all night talking about the future of blockchains and consensus and kind of convinced, really convinced ourselves that proof of stake was the future. And that, you know, all work through all of these problems around the nothing at stake attack and long range, um, long range, nothing at stake attacks and all this like interoperability and all the kinds of things that are materializing today. We were sort of like work, working through all that and convincing ourselves that, that this was really the future. And, and Vlad set out to kind of do it through Ethereum and the Ethereum community and the Ethereum um, technology. And, and I sort of felt that you know, there was as much as I love the Ethereum vision, that there were kind of more practical kind of on the ground things that, that needed to happen. And that sort of led me to finding Jay Kwan and Tendermint and starting to work with him to, to you know, adapt old Byzantine fault tolerant solutions to the, to the consensus problem, to this sort of modern blockchain context and to start using it in enterprises and to start to build an ecosystem around many blockchains rather than just trying to build one, you know, one Ethereum blockchain that could sort of handle as much throughput and compute as possible. You know, Jay and I really had a had a, a notion that there was going to be a proliferation of blockchains, many blockchains, maybe as many as cities or as as companies uh, or websites, you know, people now say there's going to be billions of them. We'll see. And and so that sort of led us, you know, down the down the path towards towards Cosmos and thinking about how do we enable a world where anyone can any community really can build to build their own blockchain and, and, and figure out how to secure it with the right level of security that's appropriate for them, not being forced to inherit like this, you know, necessarily huge global amount of security and still have all those chains be interoperable with one another, right? And that was really what, what took shape as, as the Cosmos vision and what I've now started referring to as uh, the community computer revolution. So just like we had this sort of personal computer revolution, which gave every individual uh, a computing device with the, the sort of Cosmos approach has been to bring about this community computer revolution where we want to give every community their own uh, sort of computing device that will kind of transform their relationship to technology and what they can do and so on. So that's the, at least at a high level, but, you know, we can go into more detail of any of the, the history if you'd like. Yeah, super interesting concept, the personal computer versus the community computer. Very basic question. What's the difference between Cosmos and Tendermint? Ah, that's a great question. So so Tendermint is, is a, a piece of the stack. So you could think of Tendermint as like the operating system. And, and Cosmos is kind of everything built on top of it. That's, that's one kind of analogy. More concretely, Tendermint is a consensus engine. It's a general purpose, Byzantine fault tolerant state machine replication engine. That's, that's how we describe it sort of in, in, in purely technical terms. So it takes care of the low level components of running a blockchain, right? So it takes care of the consensus algorithm and the peer-to-peer -peer networking and the mempool and all the stuff that's sort of below 
the blockchain application. It takes care of all of all of that sort of low level networking and stuff. And uh, what and Tendermint is really unique because it's pretty much the only general purpose consensus engine that has actually been implemented that's out there that allows you to build applications on top of Tendermint in any programming language. So you can build an app in, in any language you'd like, and Tendermint will allow you to take that app and transform it from an application that runs on one computer to an application that runs on many on many physical computers and, and stays in consensus on all of that. So it's sort of a, a general purpose technology for running fault tolerant um, applications. Cosmos is, is sort of a, you know, an extension of all of this. And, it, and it's the idea that, well, there's going to be many Tendermint blockchains out there. Because once we built Tendermint, we made it really easy for people to build you know, and run their own blockchains. So therefore, there's going to be many Tendermint blockchains. And so we need some concept or some project to represent this wider set of Tendermint blockchains. And more specifically, if each Tendermint blockchain you can think of as like a single logical computer, we need a way for them to connect to each other. And, and that's the interoperability piece that is kind of core to Cosmos. So, so if Tendermint was sort of this, this first building block that was you know, to, to enable arbitrary, arbitrary consensus systems and any application to inherit Byzantine fault-tolerant consensus, Cosmos is this sort of you know, umbrella project to enable there to be many Tendermint blockchains and for them to, to connect to each other, right? So I guess to make an analogy to sort of the internet and history of computing, you could say that Tendermint is like the emergence of Linux or the emergence of you know, the personal computer, and Cosmos is about the internet and connecting all of those things together and there being many, you know, many computers and, and many operating systems that then are able to, to connect to each other and talk to each other. Okay, so is, is Cosmos like a technical program that apps need, need to run or is it more of like a concept of, okay, Cosmos <laughs> is the, like, the group of all these Tendermint chains together or is it like yeah. an actual kind of... This is, I mean, somewhere. this is, no, it's, it's, it's more like the latter. I mean, I've, and I'm guilty of, you know, maybe propagating some confusion because Cosmos, I think means a little bit, uh, it means too many things, right? The, the way it was described in the white paper is that Cosmos is a network of blockchains. So whereas you can use Tendermint to build a single blockchain, Cosmos is how you, you would build many blockchains or connect those blockchains to each other. But it's really, you know, mm -hmm. the way I've described it is it's a philosophy of blockchain design. It's an approach to blockchains that includes a technology stack, which you could call the Cosmos stack. So there's the Cosmos philosophy, which is how do we go about building blockchains in the first place? There's the Cosmos technology stack, which are all the pieces we've developed that make it easy for you to actually build a blockchain. So there's Tendermint at the bottom of that. There's the Cosmos SDK, which allows you to actually build the cryptocurrency application. There's IBC, which is part of that technology stack. That's the inner, um, the inner blockchain communication protocol. And then, and then there's a, you know, there's a third name for a third thing Cosmos means, which is the Cosmos hub, which is one particular blockchain within the wider Cosmos network. So, you know, th there's a bit of a, of a movement now to call maybe the, the Cosmos hub Cosmos and call the network of blockchains the interchain. But that's that's sort of yeah marketing stuff that, that's being worked out. But, but it is important to differentiate that those sort of those sort of three, the three meanings, let's say, of Cosmos, the philosophy, the technology stack and the Cosmos hub blockchain. Because they are they are all sort of different, even though they work really well together, and we can talk about you know sort of how that is that they work well together. Okay, yeah. So this is all very different from you know the way that we're used to thinking about blockchain. So it it's mm -hmm. kind of it, it it's great to like break it down and and clear up the meaning of these concepts. Okay, so to to kind of summarize, so Tendermint is the kind of operating system that is like helps run all the kind of low level stuff that makes 
the blockchain work. Okay, and then there's the Cosmos SDK, which is like the toolkit that helps developers build applications on top of this kind of lower level ten tendermint you got stack, it. right? Yep. And then there's on top of that, there's IBC, mm -hmm. which connects all of these chains that are using Tendermint and Cosmos SDK. That's right. Except it's right? Not, I would say just, just as a caveat, IBC is technically not limited to the Cosmos SDK or to Tendermint. Oh. So there are, there are other ways to build on top of Tendermint. You don't have to use the Cosmos SDK and, and you can still use IBC if you do that. So for instance, there is a blockchain that launched recently called Nomic. And they're mm -hmm. built on Tendermint, but they do not use the Cosmos SDK. So that so the Cosmos SDK is written in Go and is one way to build blockchains on Tendermint. Nomic built their application in Rust on top of Tendermint using their own system, but they're still using IBC and they will be connecting in you know, to other blockchains. And there are others that are also building on top of Tendermint without using the Cosmos SDK. So you can use IBC okay. kind of independently mm -hmm. of, of everything else. Yeah. Okay, but you still need to be using Tendermint to be connected in the IBC network, right? Uh, or no? No, IBC is even more oh. general than that. Yep. Okay. So that's where we started because, you know, we're very practically <laughs> oriented. And I think there's a lot mm -hmm. of kind of misunderstanding of really what IBC is and, and how it works. But IBC is really about being a general purpose interoperability protocol for different blockchains. And as long as your blockchain can fit within what we call the IBC client interface, then you can use IBC. So for instance, there is work right now to develop an IBC integration for Polkadot. And Polkadot's obviously mm -hmm. not using Tendermint. And there are there's work to to implement IBC on Ethereum and in Celo and in in other with other blockchains as well. So the the main sort of IBC implementation uses Tendermint, but IBC is actually a multi layer protocol specification. And and mm -hmm. at the bottom the bottommost layer is is allows you to plug and play different kinds of consensus algorithms. So long as you can build what we call a client or a light client for that consensus. And even if you can't build a client, there are ways even around it. So you could fit like a you know, a multi-sig into IBC. So you could have mm -hmm. an IBC connection that's just controlled by a multi-sig or even a single sig. So like I can connect, you know, I can make an application and connect that over IBC to another blockchain. And that blockchain doesn't have to know that I'm, you know, just just one person. You know, it's sort of like in the internet of blockchains, nobody knows if you're a fridge, right? Mm -hmm. So so IBC is very general purpose and, and extremely powerful. And we're only just starting to actually like unveil that power and have people kind of realize what is possible with it. Oh, interesting. Okay, so somebody could create an IBC compatible Ethereum client, and mm -hmm. that would be able to connect to this network of of chains. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And and so if like once chains are connected with IBC, what what exactly can they do? Like, what's the benefit of joining? Yeah. So so there's there's let's say three layers in the IBC protocol stack. So the bottom mm -hmm. layer is the client, which is where you determine what kind of chain you're connecting to. The middle layer we call transport, authentication, and ordering. That's, that's just taking care of sort of the low-level concerns of establishing a connection between two blockchains. And then there's the IBC application layer, where you can start to build mm -hmm. actual applications that allow you to do cross-chain things. So the simplest application is token transfer, right? And that's the one that, that's live today that allows you to transfer a token from one, one chain to another. And really what's happening in token transfer is you're locking up the coin on one side of the IBC connection and you're minting a voucher, let's say, on the other side, and then that voucher can flow around. And when you send it back, the voucher gets burnt and the coin gets sort of unlocked, right? It's standard kind of bridge design, but it's all been it's all been standardized. So that's token transfer. But you can build other protocols on top other application level 
protocols on top of IBC. And we have two, one that's launching very soon and, and another that should be launching this year. The, one, the first one is, is called Interchain Account. And this basically lets you control one blockchain from an account on another blockchain. So for instance, with an account on the Cosmos Hub, I can send mm -hmm. transactions on some other IBC connected blockchain without having to transfer over to that blockchain first, right? So this, this opens up all kinds of really interesting possibilities. For instance, for, for people to build, let's say liquid staking is one, is one kind of example. So you, you'll be able to build a blockchain that uses interchain accounts and you can send atoms from the Cosmos Hub to that, to that blockchain. And then using interchain accounts, that chain can stake those atoms back onto the Cosmos Hub to a validator there but then it can do whatever it wants with sort of tokenized version of those staked atoms locally. So it really allows like a huge uh, amount of flexibility in interchain kind of communication and, and applications that I don't think people have quite, quite grokked how powerful that's going to be. So there's a lot, of, a lot of amazing potential there. And then the other, the other big application that we're building right now over IBC is what we call interchain security, which is effectively a shared security model, you know, not too dissimilar from, from sort of what Polkadot offers that will allow mm -hmm. The validator set on one blockchain to secure another blockchain by basically passing validator set updates over IBC. So IBC is a you know, general purpose protocol that you can build arbitrary application level protocols on top of. And, and that's a, a few of the ones we have now, but you can imagine other things sort of down the road, other kinds of distributed systems, algorithms, or, or whatever. And people are, I think, are just starting to understand that this level of flexibility of IBC and, and starting to look at what other kinds of protocols they could be built. And, and for instance, the holy grail, I think, of, of, of protocols on top of IBC is to implement Tendermint itself on top of IBC, where that would basically allow you to have entire blockchains acting as validators for some other blockchain that is running Tendermint over IBC. So that's like a meta, you know, mind exploding um, <laughs> kind of idea that might take us a couple mm -hmm. of years to get to, but that's, you know, ultimately, I think, um, one of the holy grails. Okay, but I guess like simplifying the concept what this allows you to do is that any any blockchain connected to IBC can like users on on those blockchains will be able to uh, use their their tokens and cryptocurrencies in just like more flexible ways like maybe they can have um, an account on on one chain but use those tokens to to stake them or swap them on another chain and and is is this like is this like pretty seamless or is it like using oh, layer yeah. twos where you sometimes need to like wait for weeks to deposit no, and no, draw no. and it's, so on? It's, or? it's completely seamless. I mean, we are so spoiled in the Cosmos ecosystem. It's a little <laughs> bit ridiculous. When any, what you like the difference of experience between using IBC uh, and Kepler, which is sort of the main wallet, versus you know doing anything on layer twos or other bridges is just it's just unbelievable. So the best way to, the, mm. to experience this is you know, get some atoms and then send them over to Osmosis, which is, you know, decentralized exchange built using the Cosmos stack, but it's, it's its own blockchain. So that's where a lot of the IBC activity is today, because everyone's sending coins over there to put them into liquidity providers or pools, you know, AMMs, and, and do, you know, trading and, and so on. And it's, and it's completely seamless and really beautiful user experience. So it's almost hard nice. to believe how nice it, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So, okay, so this is what's a, a bit confusing to me still. So you, you have applications that are their own blockchain, right? Uh -huh. So like Osmosis is a DEX, but it's also a blockchain. And it's its so, own blockchain, like, yeah. So, so how does it work? Like, what are the validators of Osmosis? Like, where does its security come from? Yeah. 
Like, so it has yeah. its own it has its own token, the Osmo token, mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. has its own validator set who stake Osmo, and Osmo has a price on the market, and you know that's that's what secures the chain ultimately. They actually rolled out a new feature which is pretty cool called superfluid staking that allows you to actually stake your LP tokens. So if you're an LP mm-hmm. on Osmosis, so you have tokens in the locked up in the AMM, you can actually stake those and contribute to the security of the chain like that. So that's so there so people mm-hmm. are already starting to explore, you know, different ways to, you know, expand the functionality of staking and, and add more security to their chains. But but that's right. I mean it's it's kind of, you know, like 10 years or five 10 years ago. Five years ago when we were talking about Cosmos, the Internet of Blockchains, there's going to be all these application specific chains. They're going to bring their own security. Like everyone was like, no, that's not going to work. Security's too expensive. Mm-hmm. You can't, you know, have every chain provide its own security. But lo and behold, that's that's what's happening. There's a new kind of business now which is called a proof of stake validator, and and these are companies that specialize in operating proof of stake independent proof of stake blockchains, and they acquire tokens one way or another, and they stake those tokens, you know, on that chain, and thereby secure the operations of that chain. And it means they have to keep up with it, they have to follow governance proposals, they have to, you know, they have to vote on stuff, they have to upgrade when it's time to upgrade, and so on. So yeah, each Cosmos mm-hmm. chain has its own has its own validator set. And there's a lot of overlap, of course. There are a lot of validators that are on all, you know, I don't know about all the chains, but many of the chains. For instance, our company runs a validator, Cephalopod Equipment, and there, you mm-hmm. know, we're on six or seven different chains or so, right? And yeah, you have to acquire the tokens and stake them. And, you know, there's always the question about, about the, the token price and therefore the security of the chain. But that, that's sort of part of the model of being able to have sovereignty over your, over your, you know, for a community to have sovereignty over its application and its infrastructure kind of requires this sort of this sort of model and it seems to be working and okay and, and taking osmosis as, as an example like how how much is stake there like how 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 many how much value in osmo tokens is securing that chain i don't know offhand as an estimate Pro- i guess probably like. a few hundred million or something yeah okay but yeah. does that mean that somebody can go and and with a few hundred million attack uh, osmosis yeah, if someone if someone had a few hundred million dollars worth of osmosis and they staked that all themselves and they were able to control, let's say, if you're able to control two thirds of the validator set, you can basically do whatever you want. So mm-hmm. if they were able to control two thirds of the validator set, they could steal everyone's money and, you know, kind of do whatever. And and there are attacks over IBC that only require one third of the validator set. And so mm-hmm. yeah. So that's right. that's real. But acquiring that stake requires acquiring that many Osmo. And so you'd have to go and buy them, you know, and, and this is true on every, on every proof of stake chain, right? It's not unique to, to Cosmos chains. There's just, there's just more of us, but it's been true on the Cosmos hub. It's, it'll be true on, you know, on Ethereum or on Polkadot or any other, any other chain where, yeah, if you, if you control a significant fraction of the supply and you're able to buy up all those tokens, then you'll, you'll control the chain. But I think the other, the other piece of this that, you know, I think, I think people take somewhat for granted is that, you know, there is accountability, there are reputations that are at stake as well as as money. And mm-hmm. there is the sort of, you know, historical nature of of actually acquiring stake, like it's hard to acquire a massive stake without everyone noticing and either the price gets driven up quite significantly as that as that happens. And so then you have mm-hmm. to question, you know, why is someone, you know, spending all this money just to destroy, just to destroy it. And, and it's possible for the community to organize socially to kind of recover. You know, there's an interesting, interesting thing happening right now around Juno, which is another another Cosmos-based blockchain where you know they airdropped their token to atom holders. So one of the fun kind of values of, of holding atoms is everyone is airdropping tokens to you these days, and 
they set a limit. They called it the whale cap of how many Juno each, each, each address could receive. And it was discovered that there was an entity that had split up its tokens across many addresses. And the limit was supposed to be like 50,000 Juno. And this, this, this guy, and it's a, you know, a known entity in Japan, ended up with like two and a half million Juno. And so the community is like trying to figure out what to do about it because they're like, they have too much of the, of the token and, you know, they could mm. influence governance or take over the net now. I mean, there's, there's, I don't know what the, what the total supply of Juno is. I think it's much more than that. So I don't know that that's a real concern yet, but you know, the community is trying to figure out what, what to do about that. And that's, that's mm. the shape of sovereignty. You know, you need to solve these problems for yourself and, and, and secure yourself and deal with these risks. Yeah. Using the Cosmos sovereignty model gives all blockchain users an incredible amount of freedom to build their platform as they see fit. But with that comes a trade-off, as they're more susceptible to attack than a larger chain, such as Bitcoin or Ethereum. So where does Ethan stand on this security issue? And what preventative measures are there? This podcast is sponsored by Nexo. Nexo.io is a crypto lending and exchange platform. Nexo supports all the major digital assets, and you can buy crypto with your credit or debit card instantly. Lend your crypto to start earning interest that's paid out daily, or borrow cash and stablecoins tax efficiently against your digital assets without selling them. Nexo complies with high security standards and is audited in real time, which is why 3 million people in over 200 countries trust the platform with their digital assets. So whether you're just getting started or you're a seasoned pro, Get the most out of your crypto today at nexo.io, nexo.io. This is a deep political economic conundrum, right? And I don't think there is a singular solution to this. The solution to this is, is politics, is like good politics mm. and citizenship and governance. And it's not something you solve mm. by just having a single global blockchain that solves all of the world's security problems. Like I think that's a, mm. you know, a utopian dream. And as much as mm. I respect the teams that are, that are trying to build that, you know, I, I don't believe we're building purely economic systems. These aren't, you know, there, there's no sort of economic determinism here that's like, well, if only you acquire enough, enough value in the token, then you, then you can completely usurp it. I mean, first of all, I don't think proof of stake is the be all end all of the story here. I think it's a, a stepping stone and we're going sort of, there's a trajectory from proof of work to proof of stake, maybe to things like proof of bandwidth to what I ultimately call proof of care or proof of plant, which are, you know, ways, ways to structure society around around the behaviors that the community deems are valuable, right? And that's a that's a ultimately a political sort of governance project, right? People need to need to constitute their communities and, and the rules around them. And blockchains right now are experiments in doing this, right? We're we're exploring, we're experimenting. Proof of stake is sort of a stepping stone, but it has it's it has riddled it's riddled with issues. There's all this like, you know, these oligopolies and and if we just sort of took the current model and just applied it to the real world and you know we'd have all these problems, just like you're saying, oh the banks would still run the world and, and then what have we achieved? So you know, personally, for me, it's not about building global, you know, public, anonymous, fully secure uh, blockchains to, to sort of rule the world. It's about empowering each community to define their own rules for how they're for they're going to be governed. And they can they can create, you know, capital controls or limits on who can enter and they can have more advanced rules on who's allowed in the validator set and how that gets decided. And you have to be, you know, a defined person. And, and I, the other reality here is like, there is such a thing as the legal system. And I know, you know, crypto anarchists and, and so on like to pretend that, oh, the legal system is, you know, it can all go away and or all we need from it is to enforce some, you know, vague notion of property rights. I don't, I don't believe that at all. I think that the legal systems are very real institutions that are very important institutions. 
they're going to need to evolve and we're going to have to interface with them properly. And, 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 you know, I don't think it's wrong to think about the reality of the legal system as you're designing systems because, you know, they exist. And if, if we're always sort of antithetical to the legal system and saying, no, we don't need that or we're against that, well, then, you know, we're not, we're not going to have a productive discourse with regulators, with the existing institutions of society. We sort of have to build on what's already there. We can't just burn it all down and, you know, pretend we can start from scratch by building some you know, global, global, fully secure blockchain system. And so, you know, I think, and there's, there's lessons in history from this too. I mean, like the, you know, utopian market fundamentalism idea that sort of emerged in the 19th century kind of did this as well. It was like, oh, we don't need, you know, any of these institutions or they're all wrong. And we can sort of obliterate all these like local, you know, pockets of information and structure and, you know, kind of dismiss sort of the structuring aspects that, that the previous feudalist system was providing not to, you know, not to romanticize or justify the the feudal feudalism or the feudal order, but it was it was providing certain sort of functions that the market system that replaced it kind of neglected. And so, you know, and and with that has threatened potentially our sustainability as a species. And there's been, yeah, there's been massive growth over the last, let's say, 200 years, but there's also been, you know, also growth in systemic risk. And so you know, I think we're, we're designing blockchains as well. These are like fundamentally political economic systems. And, and we can't just be trying to build like, a you know, global self-regulating, perfect, perfectly secure kind of final, final blockchain. It's really about enabling communities to take more control over their own lives and have more sovereignty and, and sort of empower them to, you know, to do what's right for them and still be able to interoperate with everyone else. And that's really the crux of, mm-hmm. of, of the Cosmos vision, right? It's not to provide a one size fits all solution. It's to sort of you know, continuously negotiate with the sort of political economic reality and provide tools that, you know, can help bring about the sort of more sustainable future. Okay. Got that it. No, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, like, as I understand it, anyway. and it, it yeah. yeah, yeah, it makes sense. It's like, yeah, maybe having this like one size fits all it does provide kind of just, you know, a lot of security, but at the same time, it, it is kind of maybe idealistic to think that this one solution will be the right one for every single uh, use case and like political situation and you know economic framework that comes down the line and so like your your view or 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 way of doing things is okay let's give uh, different communities the tools to build their own chains and and rule set and, and frameworks and and maybe you know they'll exactly. be able to come up with solutions to like the the problems they they face. Exactly. Um, but I would also say, I mean, it's yeah. um just 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 to sort of wrap, round out the point, we did go mm-hmm. sovereignty first, but that doesn't mean mm-hmm. that we're not also exploring ways um, to do things like shared security and and to sort of merge you know merge sovereigns and 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 so on. And so, for instance, this mm-hmm. interchain security feature that we're working on for the Cosmos Hub. You know, we are positioning the Cosmos Hub to be a service provider for the rest of this ecosystem. It's not the one chain to rule them all, but it is sort of finding a, a particular niche within the emerging within the emerging interchain. And one of the features we are developing, and you know, should be live this year, is interchain security, where new chains can launch that do leverage the security of of the Cosmos Hub. Right. So oh, we just we just took the approach of building bottom up and starting with sovereignty and sovereignty first, and putting that at the forefront. You know, not prioritizing a particular token over our over our values. And really focusing mm-hmm. on, you know, what is the most valuable thing to build at any time, right? And first it was Tenement, and then the Cosmos SDK, and then IBC. And now we feel it's actually the time where the most valuable thing we could, we could build is the Cosmos Hub and a Cosmos Hub that services, you know, all these other chains and, and, and provides these other options that there's obviously demand for, like interchain security so that chains can launch using the security of the Cosmos Hub. So, 
you know, it's not that it's not that we we won't have that functionality that you know ETH 2.0 or or, or Polkadot are are providing. It's just that we went we we took a different way to get there and sort of wanted to lay more solid foundations that we could build on top of because now we can build things like interchain security on top of IBC. So we already have a standard communications protocol, very general purpose, general purpose enough that we can build a sharding solution on top of it, right? So that was sort of mm-hmm. the more of a bottom-up approach, I would say, than, than sort of top-down, yeah. Interesting. Um, okay, and then if you can explain what Cosmos Hub is, because like I understand that, it, so we went through kind of what Tendermint is, SDK, IBC, uh, and then Cosmos Hub is, as I understand it, it's one more chain within the and like Cosmos ecosystem, right? That's right. Yeah. So it, it was really, it was really like the first. Technically, another chain mm-hmm. beat us by by a month, but really, really sort of the, the first chain to kind of put, uh, yeah, the the Iris Network, which was our sort of sister chain in in in, in China that w- that you know we worked together sort of early early on in the project. But so yeah, the Cosmos Hub launched in in early in 2019. It was sort of the first to really, really put all the pieces together and demonstrate, you know, all this technology we've been we've been working on, Tendermint, the Cosmos SDK, the staking system within the Cosmos SDK, and the governance system within there is quite, uh, you know, quite advanced, and and put all that together. And so for a while, it was really just like a prototype in a sense of like, here's what you can do with all of these pieces, mm-hmm. you know, now go build your own chain. And of course, in the last especially year, there's been a proliferation of of Cosmos SDK or Tendermint based chains that are using IBC and but, you know, and you can look at uh, mapofzones.com is this amazing visualization of all the Cosmos blockchains and IBC and all the traffic between them. And it's just like, you know, it's like witnessing the birth of a new Internet. But the Cosmos Hub itself didn't really have its own development team historically because the developers were all focused on the core pieces, on building Tendermint, on building the SDK, on building IBC, etc. And it's only within the last year, I would say, that we've, we've properly put together a team around the Cosmos Hub. Because initially, the vision for the Cosmos Hub was like, well, let's prove that this all works and that we can actually deliver IBC and all these things and, and, and enable this sort of sovereign interoperable reality with this proliferation of application chains. And, and sort of there's been a renewed impulse to set like a new vision for the Cosmos Hub, Cosmos Hub 2.0. Now that we've sort of proven that all this technology works and everyone's using it, you know, what, is, what role can the Cosmos Hub play within that emerging, emerging interchain ecosystem and this emerging Internet of Blockchains, essentially, right? So we've only really finally put a team together to really focus on the Cosmos Hub in the last year. And we sort of outlined three key functions, three, sorry, that was four, <laughs> three key <laughs> functions that, that the Cosmos Hub aims to play and that features that, that we're building on. And those are, these are sort of the three pillars of the Cosmos Hub, you could say. And they are public goods, interchain services, and, and money, if we put it like that. And so on the public goods front, mm-hmm. we're building uh, tools and functionality on the Cosmos Hub to make it really easy to sort of launch organizations, you know, raise funds to, to develop projects and use it as like a shelling point for funding the public goods within the Cosmos ecosystem, these core pieces, Tendermint, the SDK, IBC, IBC Relayers, Cosmosm, you know, things like that. There's all this technology that people are building that's very general purpose. And so the Cosmos Hub is positioning itself as a way to raise funds across all the different chains to fund these sort of common goods that everyone is everyone is benefiting from. So that's the sort of public goods piece. The interchain services piece, which is, you know, what we're focusing quite a bit on now, is on providing services to this emerging interchain all of these blockchains are coming online. Each one is focused on some application-specific reality, whether it's a DEX or a lending platform or you know, a smart contract platform, whatever it might be. And the Cosmos Hub is focusing on what, what cross-chain functionality can the Cosmos Hub provide to make it easier and, and sort of improve the UX for all of these other, for all of these other mm-hmm. blockchains coming online and starting to connect to each other. So it's not, it will never be required to use the Cosmos Hub 
to sort of access IBC and connect into the Internet of Blockchains because that's just you know that, that, that's not that's not our values. We're a you know, permissionless sort of sovereign sovereignty maximalist, but we want the Cosmos Hub to be able to provide services over and above what what people already get out of the software that makes it easier for them to use IBC. And so, for instance, you know, interchain routing is sort of a, a big one, or chain name chain naming registry, like like things that you need in this emerging interchain. Uh, the sort of Cosmos Hub is a, is a common place for them and. Actually, the maintaining the IBC infrastructure requires offline or sorry, off-chain processes called relayers, IBC relayers that actually take care of relaying packets back and forth. They're very expensive to operate. And so having all of these chains connecting point to point with each other is very expensive to maintain versus if they were all to just connect to the Cosmos hub, it could be a lot cheaper and easier and we could provide higher quality service and things like that, but they'd still always be able to fall over. So it wouldn't be like a central point of failure. It would just be like a you know, a, a sort of faster way and more efficient way to do things. And then, of course, there's interchain security, which is another sort of interchain service that will allow new chains to launch using the Cosmos Hub, using the security of the Cosmos Hub. So these are all sort of features under mm-hmm. interchain services. And then there's the monetary function where sort of Adam has this, because the Cosmos Hub is somewhat like Bitcoin, it's a little bit more of a conservative chain. You know, it's not mm-hmm. trying to evolve too rapidly or adopt like, you know, the, the most advanced sort of experimental features right away. It's a little bit more conservative and stable, you know, a, a place that, you know, we want like institutional firms and, and larger, more conservative firms to be able to sort of park assets and, and serve as like a jumping off point, a sort of safe starting point to explore the rest of the sort of more experimental ecosystem. And with that comes this sort of, you know, with that sort of conservative ethos comes this sort of monetary, monetary function that allows you to sort of trust Adam's as a little bit more kind of stable, potentially, that could be used as, as collateral in the rest of the ecosystem and, and, and sort of stuff like that. So there's, there's that sort of monetary function. And even further within that, and this is the stuff that I'm really excited about, and we'll probably be looking at using interchain security for this, is to actually start building applications that connect with the real world and that start to take care of monetary functions within the real world. And in, in particular, enabling things like credit clearing and mutual credit to emerge in, in more communities with more sort of real world businesses not necessarily having to know that they're using, you know, Cosmos or or that, you know, there's anything really happening sort of blockchain wise behind the scenes, but to sort of bring more more services to them that allow them, you know, to reduce their sort of liquidity costs and, and requirements and sort of help make small businesses more viable and, and sustainable. But that's a whole other um, whole other mm. topic to get into. Yeah. So in other words, oh, Cosmos so Hub 2.0 vision story is, is coming together. And, you know, Billy, who's sort of the, the lead for the Cosmos Hub right now, he does these these Twitter spaces, I think, every week. And CryptoCito has been hosting the show on, on the sort of Cosmos Hub. So there's there's lots of information out there you can start to tune in and hear about, but there isn't like a, a second white paper yet, but maybe there maybe it's time for that. The goal for the Cosmos Hub is for it to provide tooling for chains to launch and be optimized. It's a chain that's in service of other chains. So what's the role of the Atom token within this ecosystem? And where does Ethan see Cosmos in the long term? This podcast is sponsored by Matcha. When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? To make sure you're getting the best possible price, you should use a DEX aggregator like Matcha. Matcha routes your orders across all the various DeFi exchanges on Ethereum, Polygon, BSC, Phantom, and Avalanche to provide the best possible prices without taking any commissions. Matcha has a fiat on-ramp so you can buy directly with your credit or debit card. It also has smart order routing that splits your orders across multiple liquidity sources. And it allows you to make limit orders on-chain so you can set and forget your DeFi trades. Head over to matcha.xyz defiant and connect your wallet to start trading. 
Yeah, so Adam's the staking token for the, for the Cosmos Hub. And so obviously has a role in all of this and in, in sort of securing that sort of main conservative uh, chain that's providing, all, that's providing all of these services. Adam is also, you know, able to be used as sort of a fee token sort of throughout the Cosmos ecosystem. I think uh, other chains are starting to look at allowing people to pay fees in Adam and, and Adam sort of being positioned as, as like prime collateral within the ecosystem because Cosmos has really, there's good integrations with Atom and exchanges and other service providers and it's sort of been around for a long time and and so there's sort of more I guess I guess trust in it and 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 with this sort of Cosmos Hub 2.0 vision it will unlock all kinds of new features for and and, and demand for Atom and things you can do with it you know so for instance liquid staking is coming which will which will allow you to sort of stake atoms but still use them and still they'll still be sort of transferable and will sort of open up more more doors things like this. So it's it's a staking token like other staking tokens. It's used for fees on the Cosmos Hub. It can be used for fees on, on, on other chains and sort of building the, the monetary ecosystem around it will, will continue with with the sort of Cosmos Hub 2.0. I know that there's a lot of talk about the sort of tokenomics of Atom and it's, you know, very inflationary and all this kind of things like all of that is up, up for up for change. I mean, the current parameters are just sort of what was there at the beginning to kind of bootstrap the thing. But I can certainly see a world where the tokenomics are radically changed where something like the 1559 is sort of introduced so atoms start being burned as fees or where you know the the supply becomes capped at some point and sort of or more goes into the community pool like like i said there's sort of the the constitution of a cosmos hub team is still a new thing and so it's still kind of just starting to grow and really start to focus and so it's kind of amazing what we've been able to achieve even without that team just through this sort of more diverse kind of you know folks working on the core products and now or the core public goods and now that you sort of uh, more Cosmos Hub focused team is kind of coming together, even in the still kind of a decentralized fashion. Cosmos is known for being, you know, more entities than anyone can keep track of. But those entities are all, you know, a, a number of them are sort of really focusing on building up the Cosmos Hub and and then sort of use cases for Atom and the tokenomics of Atom are all sort of flowing out of that. So I expect you'll see, I expect we'll see a lot of, of sort of updates and, and, and changes to the tokenomics over, over the next two years to really sort of stabilize things and make it kind of a really secure place to custody assets and sort of launch into the rest of the ecosystem from. Super interesting. And and quick aside, this team working on Cosmos Hub is that informal systems? It's a it's a bunch of companies, but uh, yeah, informal systems is one. Interchain is one. The Peggy mm -hmm. JV team, the Strange Love team. There, there's a bunch of companies working on it. So Cosmos is a sort of pretty diverse um, group of organizations and mm -hmm. quite decentralized. Yeah. And who would or or how would this decision to change tokenomics be made? Like, what what's governance like? Yeah, so governance has been a on-chain governance has been a key part of the Cosmos stack pretty mm -hmm. much from the beginning. So you know when we first shipped, there was a governance on-chain governance protocol. It's relatively simple. It just you know it, uh, you put up a proposal. There's a deposit required, and the deposit can be crowdfunded. But once the threshold is hit, then the proposal becomes active, and then validators and delegators can vote. So validators can vote, and they'll vote with the weight of all of their all the stake delegated to them, but then individual delegators, if they want, they can override the vote of their validator and sort of vote independently. And then there's four voting options, yes, no, no with veto, and abstain. And a quorum of stake is required for the vote to, to be sort of valid. So I think it's right now 40% of the stake has to, has to actually show up and vote. And then, you know, if, if, if more than 50% of that votes yes, it passes. And if more than a third votes no with veto, then the thing then it fails and so that that's sort of built in there because there's a little bit a little bit subtle but it's basically because it's always possible for because of the way the consensus works if you control more than a third of the voting power you can always stop votes from going through you can censor transactions and so on and so you know we sort of recognize that kind of directly in the voting uh, system in the governance system 
say, okay, if you're really against something, you know, a third of the of the voting power, because they kind of have this power anyway to censor, you know, but they would have to kind of coordinate and, and, you know, collude and all that. We sort of made it explicit for them to be able to, to vote no with veto, and then there's abstain if, if, if you want to abstain. So governance has been pretty active uh, on the hub and on other chains. I mean, this, the, the stuff happening on Juno obviously had like 95% turnout or something. It was pretty nuts. Uh, it was really crazy to see how many people are out voting. So that's pretty exciting. And yeah, so for any big tokenomic change, it would require it would require passing a governance proposal. There are things that are just parameters. So you can make a proposal that will just change a parameter or a few parameters. And then if governance approves it, then the parameter changes. And that's happened a bunch of times. But any sort of larger change requires a vote to actually do an upgrade. And then, you know, developers would work on the software, they make a proposal to upgrade to it. And then if that vote passed, then there would be, you know, an upgrade at some point in the future. Very cool. So in, in launching and developing like all these different pieces for the Cosmos ecosystem, I mean, it, it seems like, you know, it's been a lot, like it's, it's a, a pretty kind of complex system, like very technical, a, a lot of just like new infrastructure. And so like, what are some of the maybe, you know, just like lessons from, from shipping all this stuff, like things you wish you, you could have done differently? I don't know. And, and, and just like the challenges going forward as well. Yeah, there have been some unique organizational challenges in, in Cosmos, and that's you know part of what led to um, there being so many organizations now and us being so so decentralized. One thing I would love to have done sooner is institute a, a workers cooperative model for us to work together under. So Informal Systems, which is the company I'm, I'm running now, is a workers cooperative, which means every employee after nine months they get a membership. You know, nine months is the gestation period for a human. So after nine months, they become a full member of the cooperative, and then that entitles them to a vote on any sort of major, major decisions. And so, you know, I would have loved to have that kind of model right from the beginning, and maybe we would all still be one big, you know, workers uh, cooperative organization. But you know, possibly in the future, we'll sort of reconstitute something like that. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of cooperatives, and I think it's kind of tragic that there aren't aren't more of them, especially workers cooperative, and especially in the blockchain space. And you know, I think that's that's something I'd really like like to see changed and and different. As far as I don't know, maybe on the on the technology front, you know, we were <laughs> I think we were really naive about how complex the system was, and so there's this joke that we were like two months away from launch for like 16 months, and that finally we got to the point where we were only six weeks away from launch, and that's how we knew, you know, it was really going to be launch time. So you know, we, we probably could have done a better job of like specking things out ahead of time and really understanding the scope of the complexity of the system and sort of planning better for that. But those are all the sort of classic challenges as, you know, technology software startups have. So, yeah. Great. And then going forward, like what are some of the big milestones that you're working, you know, that Cosmos ecosystem is, is working towards this year? I know you, you mentioned shared security with Cosmos yeah. Hub. Like what, yeah. what are some of the, the other kind of big ones? Yeah, so that's a that's a really big one because that'll really open up up the door to uh, you know new app, more kinds of applications coming to Cosmos and, and sort of using the Cosmos Hub and and therefore the atoms sort of securing you know more and more value. I think the other is interchain accounts, which will should launch on the Cosmos Hub very shortly with with the next upgrade. But you know we'll need other chains to upgrade to actually use it. So so just like more, I mean we've heard, we've hit these incredible milestones with IBC. I think we're doing something like. 13 million IBC transfers a month in total across all the IBC chains, which is just, mm. just nuts. You can see this all on mapazones.com. I encourage people to go to that, go to that site because it's really, you know, something amazing to witness and to actually start using it. But so actually seeing more, more uses of IBC, more kinds of applications using IBC, I think will be really big milestones. So getting interchain accounts to work and getting people to actually start building applications that are sort of interchain accounts native 
will open up all kinds of amazing possibilities. Like, like for instance, we were just talking about governance. You'll be able to have one chain vote to do something on another blockchain. So like governance on one chain will actually be able to control an account on another blockchain using, using interchain accounts. So it's just like, just open so many possibilities for, you know, cooperation across blockchains. And so actually seeing those things start to happen, I think will be, will be really exciting and seeing chains start to start to use interchain security. Those are sort of the two huge milestones for us. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. And then starting to wrap up Cosmos in kind of the, the future, I don't know, way out, which I don't know, in, in blockchain and crypto world, maybe it's like two years from now <laughs> or, or like, say five years from now let's say yeah like where does cosmos fit like just like thinking about what you mentioned before cosmos in relation to ethereum to bitcoin to like all the other layer one chains like do you see cosmos as competing with ethereum and and taking over kind of market share from it or complementing it and yeah like how how does the landscape look yeah i I think it's largely uh complementary i mean ethereum you know is this sort of world computer vision and is trying to build some some very specific global censorship resistant, you know, compute protocol. And I think there are going to be limits to its scalability and stuff. And the, you know, the team is kind of already experiencing that with the sort of years of research and struggle to sort of get ETH 2.0 out. With with Cosmos, or at least what I'm most interested in, I am I am trying to deeply study the structure of the monetary system and the banking system and the payment system and how sort of corrupt and broken it is and how essential it is to the problems of sustainability and, and sort of resilience and, you know, to some extent, staving off certain kinds of civil war. And so it's really important to me that, that we address those kind of core infrastructural problems and that we do it right, which means like attending to the actual political economics of the situation. And, and so I sort of, you know, I, I express my philosophy as monetary localism. I believe that money should be a much more locally governed phenomenon and that communities, you know, whether it's cities or, or other kinds of local local jurisdictions should have more sovereignty over their over their monetary system and their ability to sort of engage with it. And, and so those are the kinds of things that, that I'm hoping to be working on over the next five years. And, and whether that means cities issuing their own local currencies per se, or just means, you know, alternatives to kind of bank loans and, and, and payment system for small businesses to be able to, you know, manage shocks and, and sort of clear payments with each other more readily, I think is, is, is really important because the, the banking system is really ill and there are all kinds of indications of that. You know, 2008 happened, but we've, we've never really recovered from that. Like that was a, a monetary crisis that, that the extent of which I don't think has been well understood and there hasn't really been a recovery in any sense. And so we're still suffering from this like deep deflationary monetary structure. And, you know, that sounds crazy because like, you know, consumer prices are up and all this stuff, but those are, those are for other reasons. Reasons I think what, what's happening though, it seems, and especially over the last 15 years, there's been like a complete collapse of small businesses and, and small business lending. And it's been, you know, everything is focused on like the biggest and most, you know, let's say secure companies that are able to get loans at, at very low interest rates and so on. And, and this has all been at the expense of the sort of heart and soul of the, of the economy, which are smaller businesses and, and, and smaller entities being able to, being able to operate. So you know, I'm really hoping that over the next five years, we're able to, with the Cosmos technology, make an impact for, you know, real world networks of trade and small businesses that makes them more resilient, better able to, to tolerate shocks and able to clear, you know, more economic activity with less, let's say, exchange media and less, less dependence on bank loans and, and, and things like that. So um, I wouldn't say Very I'm trying cool. to quite, you know, destroy all the banks yet or something like that. I mean, I'm hoping <laughs> there's a way we can all kind of work together, but they're not, they're not pre- performing the function they're supposed to perform. and and the economic system is really ill because of it. And so that's, that's really important for me to address. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. So obviously, you know, 
your you said your sovereignty maxim a sovereignty maximalist. So I guess like developers and like founders will build whatever within the the Cosmos ecosystem. But your hope is that uh, its main impact will be in the financial system, just like providing an alternative to traditional uh, finance and and to what kind of the, the function that banks have been having. Hopefully, you know with blockchain technology there there can be just a better way of of doing things and and financing you know smaller communities and 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 smaller businesses is is that kind of your your hope sort of i mean i wouldn't frame it as just as just the financial system i mean one way to think about finance and payments is it's just the inverse of the supply chain or the like you know reverse of the supply chain and and so for me really it's about sustainability of the species and i think that means smaller scale supply chains more localism more self-sufficiency in communities. And, and so it's really about supporting that, supporting like social and ecological regeneration, let's say. And, and one way I, I think that's really important to do that, because if we don't do it, it's really hard to make progress on other things, is addressing these like core monetary systemic issues, right? And so it's not even so much about finance as it is about the sort of monetary structure as, as, as a way to address that. And so that, that's one application, but there are others, obviously, we need to clean up the planet and, you know, rejuvenate and, and regenerate all kinds of ecologies. And there are applications of Cosmos for that, which I think are really exciting. So there's the Regen Network that's doing that. There's IXO, which is doing these social impact bonds. So there are, you know, a bunch of a bunch of Cosmos-based projects that are trying to actually, you know, clean up this mess we've made over the last, let's say, 200 years or so. And and so those are things I'm really excited about as well and would, would love to see more of. And of course, all the like DeFi, DGen stuff is is a lot of fun and we're learning a lot. And there's a lot of experimentation mm-hmm. happening and you know, sort of almost rediscovering from first principles, you know, governance and politics and all these kinds of interesting things, which, you know, maybe that will train up a bunch of people to be to become politicians and to help, you know, restructure our actual organization or actual institutions. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. But yeah, I'm hoping that these, cool. these technologies actually start to have real world impact and help communities become more, more sustainable and self-sufficient and, and so on. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. And then one final question, Ethan, is how are you defiant? <laughs> In many ways, I guess. I, I reject almost all standard classifications. You know, I don't like being put in boxes, so you can't label me other than the terms I came up with because, you know, I don't want you to have the wrong connotations. You know, I'm, I defy the sort of standard understandings of, you know, capitalism and what we're trying to do and, and standard organizational structures. And I'm sort of constantly, maybe to a fault, putting, putting my values first. You know, we, the, the, this company, Informal Systems, we built is, a, is structured as a workers' cooperative. And, you know, we defied traditional, traditional organizational structures to really make something different. And our goal in the long term with that company is to transform what I feel are three, what we feel are three, you know, really ill, but really important institutions of society, software, how we build and deploy it, money, how we issue and distribute it, and organizations, how we, how we own and, and govern them. And so we are defying all the current uh, ways we do things in those, in those institutions and, and hopefully remaking them for the better. Awesome. I love that answer. Cool. One random question. I was asking on Twitter, you know, what people wanted to know. Matt Huang from Paradigm said something about chicken. <laughs> Is that something? <laughs> What's that about? Yeah, I used to have chickens. So I, I, for a while, I lived in a small town outside outside Toronto. I had a house, mm-hmm. have a house there, and we had chickens. We had like twenty five chickens in the backyard. So every morning, oh I go out and play with my chickens. Chickens are an absolute delight to have. So. The chickens are gone because we've moved out of that house. So, you know, they're, they're largely in our tummies at, at one point. We make chicken soup and, and stuff out of them. But we had, we had <laughs> eggs galore serious? for a while. Oh, my God. 
Yeah, we had so many eggs, we didn't even know what to do with them. So if you can have chickens, I highly recommend them. I hope to have chickens again soon. But yeah, I've been threatening to like quit computer science and become a farmer for like my whole career. That would be a great loss to the industry. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) don't piss me off too much or I'm out of (laughs) here. No, no. Um, um, th- yeah. That's actually a, like another, also a dream of mine to have a farm with lots of animals. I'm, yeah. I'm a huge animal lover. Like I've always wanted to have like a donkey and like deer and like foxes and bunnies and I don't know, just like yeah. a big. I don't know. If, you know. I don't know if foxes and bunnies go well together, but that's otherwise, true. That sounds fun. Yeah. Stuff, but, but they're just like both cute on it on their own. Maybe like yeah. bunnies inside the house and foxes outside. Yeah. 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 Cool. Okay, so uh, a farmer and a rapper. Those are our our two side hobbies of Ethan Buckman that I I didn't expect kind of going into this research. I won't put you on the the spot and have you rap, but I'll definitely listeners to to go and check out Ethan's rapping skills. (laughs) Very undervalued, or I I guess they should be better known because they're, they're Actually, generally, re- really good. Really, really good appreciate skills. that. <laughs> I, uh, I'm still planning on making a proposal to the Cosmos Hub for some funds so I can produce an album. So I've got some oh, more go tracks I need to write, and there's a there's a few good ones in there already. So yeah, <laughs> amazing. All right, Ethan. Well, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks a lot for having me. It was a lot of fun. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Defiant Podcast. Together, we are taking hold of the world of DeFi and Web3 with the most influential voices in the space. Don't forget to subscribe to all our channels, our newsletter, YouTube, social media accounts, and of course, this podcast. See you next week.